Welcome to Rewide, a podcast that brings to you cutting-edge ideas on how to create a just economy and society. We'll have conversations with policymakers and activists at the forefront of efforts to transform our society. I am Duma Bubude, an economist and financial journalist. And I'm Isabel Fry, a lawyer and social justice activist. Together, we want to provide you with information and insights so that you can have meaningful debates in your spaces and communities. Universal basic income, or what is the big idea? Today, we have as our guest Ravi Naidu. Ravi spent more than 25 years working on development policy and impact programs. He currently leads the Bluefields Group, focusing on impact investment. While the concept of a basic income grant has a long history, as we'll soon hear, it's fascinating that this idea now has global resonance. Many people are talking about the idea, but what exactly is it? Why have we chosen this topic as the first episode of Rewire? And who is Ravi Naidu, and why do we want him on the show? Listen up, and you'll have enough true knowledge to debate with the best, and who knows, to change the world. So just looking at the context of a basic income grant, the definition of a basic income grant or universal basic income is a cash grant paid through the state of a regular unconditional sum of money to each individual in a specific area. So you don't have to undertake any tasks or conditions. You don't have to appear, present yourself or your children to a clinic to be healthy. It's essentially an unconditional sum to guarantee your well-being. And this idea of a basic income grant is not new. Arguably, the first published advocate was Thomas Paine, who published The Rights of Man in 1791, which included basic income. Now, Paine was an English-born American political activist, philosopher, political theorist, and revolutionary. And he, in his free time, inspired the patriots in 1776 to declare independence from Great Britain. Wikipedia describes him as a corset maker by trade and a journalist by profession. So Duma, as a journalist, I'm not sure whether your course of making is up to scratch. However, to many, the idea of basic income is that it liberates people to be free to explore and do what they want to do without being bound as wage slaves. For this reason, it's also in the last few years been looked at by many billionaires in Silicon Valley as the answer to the redundancy of human labor brought about by the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So people argue it's a means to de-link income which we all know you need, from work, which fewer and fewer will have. Looking globally, one of the well-known examples of basic income is in the American state of Alaska. So Alaska introduced an Alaskan permanent fund when oil was discovered in 1976. The Alaskan permanent fund, which is a sovereign wealth fund, is funded largely by proceeds of the oil. Annual dividends are paid to all residents of the state. So it's an annual dividend, and in 2019, this amounted to $1,606 per person. The idea of a fiscally funded big, i.e. one through the tax system, has had a wide spectrum of supporters. The extreme right, of course, can be associated with the writings of Milton Friedman and his ilk, who support the idea of a social wage to try and justify the shutting down of the state, small state idea. So all public goods will be privatized and you in receipt of a basic income can then purchase them from service providers who of course make a profit on the side. However on the left we've got successors of pain who believe that the right to a UBI is a fundamental human right. 
Many point out that a BIG or BIG would ensue a continued circulation of money amongst the entire population, and so also guaranteeing a healthier economy than the one in which the bulk of wealth is hoarded by a very few. Interesting, recently we of course witnessed an increasing number of pilots or experiments of a basic income grant from about 2008-2009. During this period, Namibia, for instance, our neighbour hosted a highly successful basic income grant. The patron of the Basic Income Grant and its campaign, Bishop Kamita, had a deep history, of course, in the liberation movement of Swapo. He subsequently became the first Minister of Welfare and Poverty Alleviation in Namibia, and he recently led the introduction of a once-off Basic Income Grant in order to address the COVID-19 crisis. Other experiments have been held in India, in Finland, the Netherlands, Canada, and closer to home again in Kenya. While the experiments differ both in design and assumptions, they confirm the underlying point. Give people money and they're better off. More better off people make for a more prosperous, stable and fulfilled population. The main objection which we're going to explore levied against this idea is that it's not affordable. We believe that this is simply not the case. It depends on how you draw your balance sheets, as Duma will unpack slightly later in this podcast. In fact, the real objection by most of the chattering middle classes and the elite is, you cannot give the poor money for free. We want sweat equity from them. Charming. In South Africa, we actually need a disruption of decades-old inequality, racially drawn destitution and structural poverty. The last report on Labour Force Survey reported a broad unemployment rate of 38% of the labour market. We also know that our income and asset wealth is the highest in the world. And prior to COVID-19, more than one in four South Africans were starving, living below the food poverty line of 561 rand per person per month. More than one in two live below the upper bound poverty line of 1,227. So for us, the idea of leapfrogging over the outdated dream of full employment is why a basic income grant is a great idea. In 2002, then Minister of Social Development, Dr. Zolo Squia, released a report of a Committee of Inquiry into a Comprehensive Social Security System. As I mentioned earlier, Ravi Naidu, our guest, sat on that committee, which is known as the Taylor Committee. Social Security is a guaranteed constitutional right in South Africa, and Professor Vivian Taylor was tasked to find the brightest and best minds to see how this could best be done. Probably the youngest of these was Ravi Naidu. Ravi is the first person to explain to me personally what the NDR stood for. Could you start talking to us about the history of a basic income grant in South Africa and also why, as far as you want to tell us, it was shut down? What's interesting are the political arguments as well as economic ones. If you'd like, could you share some of the tensions behind the scenes and also what you think drives current odds for the introduction of a basic income grant? Thanks, Isabel. Perhaps I could just start by giving a bit of background to the Taylor Committee, how it came to be, what its purpose was, and just some of the dynamics behind it, maybe just to set the scene. That would be great. So my background, which led me to be in that committee, was I had worked on the Unemployment Insurance Fund restructuring a few years before that. And part of what we had done then was look at how to bring in people who were not under the UIF into the UIF at the same time as fix it from a financial point of view because it was hemorrhaging money. And what we did was 
find a way to do that through changing the payment schedules and then bringing in domestic workers. And there was a uh, very successful process at the time to do that. And I'd also worked on uh, a year before the UIF, actually, uh, the reform of the pension fund uh, laws. Uh, pension funds, which are also part of Social Security, the issue then uh, was that, uh, and coming from a trade union background, the first thing uh, we looked at was that the pension fund money comes from uh, workers who are the members, but they had no uh, rights to elect the trustees of pension funds. Right. So they had no say over how their own money effectively was being used, and often very, very poorly. So we changed the laws. And, and so those are my first two assignments in Social Security. So because of that, when a couple of years later, they were setting up a committee looking at the overall restructuring of Social Security uh, and coming with the backing, I suppose, of the labor movement. That's how, that's how I ended in, uh, in, in that committee. The committee was uh, chaired, as you say, by Vivian Taylor. Uh, she was the advisor to the Minister of Social Development, uh, I would say a long-time progressive intellectual. And shortly after she finished in the committee, she ended up being an advisor to Amartya Sen in the United Nations. That's right, sustainable development. That. Do you remember sustainable development was also a uh, very uh, topical issue? And about human security. And human security and so on. So within the politics of the time, there were two things that were important that were giving birth to this committee. One was we were now six years into the democratic transition in South Africa. And exactly like with the UIF and the pension funds and all of that, we are finding that the institutional arrangements were very weak. So the systems had been set up for white people. So we had pretty good social security from a white perspective, but they were structurally put together to exclude black people. So they are fragmented in that very South African apartheid social exclusion by design right. process. Okay, so there was a so by 99, 1999, 2000, there was still a process underway of systematically restructuring social security. So, so that was one driver. The second thing uh, was this was also globally ten years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the discussion on globalization was very hot. I thought you were going to say the end of communism. In terms of Eastern Europe had fallen apart and had been was being reconfigured and those experiments were becoming clear. But the debate was social exclusion uh, because of the effects of globalization or neoliberal globalization and its consequences and etc. So, And by 1999, you had already had a number of financial crises, 2000, and you could see already that it was not going to end well. It wasn't quite the end of history. There, there, there was going to be more in the show before. So South Africa then was looking at it from a point of view of what do we do with, uh, in terms of social security? The, the mandate was of the committee was uh, to develop a comprehensive system of social security and the operative word being comprehensive. And you could take it in a very technical level, which was we're looking at how to link social assistance, things like old age pension, child support grant, right? With social insurance, things which like the UIF, things that you contribute towards as a member right? because you are employed, as well as the third part, which will be your private schemes, medical aids, pension funds, all of those. Okay, all of them fit together. You know, you are born, you're supported as a child, you go to work, something happens, you're supported in your work, 
and then you retire. So the whole cradle to the grave. There's supposed to be a system. And the countries think about uh, how comprehensive that is and how one piece links to the other, so you don't suddenly fall into a big hole. So that's by design. One looks at how to do that. The the thinking then was well, we have a very fragmented system because of the racial apartheid history, but also because these institutional pieces weren't designed to fit together. Right. So you would be uh, supported as a child, but there's nothing for working age people. And then what happens? They were looking at dealing with it from a safety net point of view, but then the thinking was no. Interpret this more broadly. The world is changing, mm-hmm. and that's where the word comprehensive came in to say it was a code word to say no, no, this is going to be uh, more about the arrangements in society more broadly than just a technical exercise to put institutions together about minimum income or support. It was so. So the interpretation was broader, and uh, the committee then looked at a number of things from. Uh, the social grants to the UIF to medical aids. So, in fact, even though it became more known for its basic income grant proposal, there were a number of other proposals which went through on the other areas. Including the introduction of a single social security payment agency, SASA. Yes, so there were a number of things that were were put in. And uh, I was just one of the members of the committee. There were, I think, about 12. uh, And half of them were senior officials in the public service including from National Treasury, Department of Labor, Health. And the idea was to be as inclusive as possible in the committee to keep the debates in the committee rather than just have it, you know, uh, the social departments and a lot of uh, progressive people, and then you go and fight it out with Treasury. So National Treasury was actually part of the committee, and they tried to, in the process, keep them on. And I think to some extent, it, well, it was an interesting process. And in the end, it did make its recommendations – a number of them went through, and some of them had to be, I think, taken forward uh, in a more tactical manner. So I have to say I learned a lot about uh, working things through the institutions of the state. And you often find that what people, the public doesn't understand, uh, and some bureaucrats as well, the more complicated and the more compliance requirements you put in place, the more you create opportunities for corruption. The simpler you are, the system is the, e- the, 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 the there's less need for corruption in the first place. Uh, the characteristics of, of uh, work were changing. Even then you can see people were falling in and out of work globally much more frequently. And therefore the idea that someone is going to work in one company for a long time and then retire wasn't going to be the case. Right. So income insecurity was going to become a feature. And therefore something had to change in the old Uh, social security thinking Um, third and this was where i think there was it was it was an interesting team of people in the committee but one of the things that came through was let's also look at we have to find new distributive distributive mechanisms within society to channel the proceeds of economic growth so what would be a mechanism to build in place that will allow you in future based on your own political choices, to have a better distribution of the wealth. That's where the basic income grant proposal came in for all of those reasons. One is we didn't want a means-tested system because you could see it was bad. Two, people needed income because they were falling in and out of work, and that was going to be a feature. And three, could it be part of a bigger uh, social contract 
or uh, citizenship income. It was discussed at the time as a solidarity grant was the term used then. But the international term, I mean, it was, there, were, there weren't many countries talking about basic income grant at that time in 2000. So that was then the proposal that found its way in the report as one of the key things. Ravi, can you just explain some of the details of the proposal, how it worked? So the basic income grant proposal uh, worked like this. Uh, the idea would be you wouldn't have means testing anymore. You would give everyone who was a citizen a certain amount of money, and we looked at 100 rand per person or 200 rand, 500 rand. There were different modeling scenarios, and they would get it. Regardless of whether they were poor or rich, it made no difference. There was no testing for income. You just had to have a South African ID, some identification. You would then get the money. What would then happen, there will be a tax clawback. The tax system would be adjusted so that wealthier people wouldn't really benefit from it in net terms. They would probably be paying you know, 250 rand or 300 rand back but the person who was at the lower end in terms of the income scale would keep the money. So there would be a form of redistribution because a lot of people object to the concept initially on giving rich people a universal basic income grant. But you've just explained that in a way they would be subsidizing the rest of the system because it would be clawed back and they would be taxed in addition. That's right. Just the simplest way to get money out you get the money and the tax system get, then brings it back. So with the clawback, the, the amount of expenditure is substantially less. So at the time when we looked at it, with the clawback, it came out at the national cost per year was in the region of 14 billion rand for the whole year, which nowadays you look at and say, wow. Why what is the headline number? We, we had about 40, 40 million people each getting... Uh, hundred and then with however they modeled the tax, so it was it was a reasonably simple uh, formula that was being proposed. Was it to everyone, irrespective of age? Yes. So so we had a debate because one of the one of the debate about a basic income grant is is it on top of what is already there or is it including? Now at that point, uh, we were still building the social security system. In terms of the way in which the debate then took shape, perhaps I'll just talk to that. So, so in terms of how the debate then went forward, most institutions who then made submissions, I remember being quite in favour. Business as well. There was a fair amount of support across the board. Within government as well, there were obviously uh, supports, but you had the contestation across all the different uh, segments. A number of things came up, I suppose, as important objections. The one objection was, well, we don't need it because economic growth will solve the problem. That was really the gear principle. Yeah, so, so that would have come from your more, your very conservative pro-economic austerity finance teams, strictly, you know, uh, but even that, there would have been a division amongst amongst uh, people coming from that background, but very much the ones saying, look, uh, we've had six years of democracy and all these things, these reforms are going to create lots and lots of jobs. This is just an idea that's not necessary. Number two, we had some people who were maybe misguided conceptually who thought, well, uh, this is welfarist because why? This is like a dole. 
particularly people who had experience of Europe or England, who thought this was a doll. They weren't seeing it in the context of what I was mentioning earlier, which is the world is changing. This is the way to deal with ongoing income in, uh, instability. So it was at Thatcherite. Yeah, yeah. And this, this would have been even from people on the left, but who had a particular troubled experience, I would say, maybe, you know, in a different country. Third, there were people who would have been a bit scared because no one's done it before. So in all of those, one could work through the issues. The, the economic one was the hardest simply because it was coming from quarters who were really the ones in charge of the money within government. And uh, the president at the time, President Becky, was not a fan because he was quite pro-economic austerity. This was not his thing. And the Minister of Finance? And the Minister of Finance would have been also very close to that view, obviously. So you, the minister in charge of social development was very pro, and he would have been on loads of interviews saying, this is a great idea, we should do it. And the Minister of Finance was Trevor Manuel, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so there was a debate within government, but obviously as ministers, you, there's a limit to how much you can say something when your president clearly is not keen. And, Having said uh, that, I do remember Zola Squia independently affirming it and saying that he was speaking outside of party lines, um, supporting it, which was actually the first politically that an individual, that a cabinet minister yeah. ventured out. Yes, I mean, you have to be very brave uh, as a minister. You remember this was also the time when there was an HIV-AIDS debate. ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe was being supported. And I, I remember, so so the base income grant, as important as it was, but might have been number three or number four on the debating uh, hit list. And you remember Malin, the Mail and Guardian asked cabinet to say, does HIV cause AIDS? Can you say yes or no? And only one minister was prepared to say anything, which is Carter Asimov. Awesome. <laughs> Who said, of course it is, you idiot, <laughs> or something along those lines. Every other minister ducked the question. So, so, it's, so it's a very difficult thing within the discipline of uh, state institutions to break rank. So Zodoskuya was, in a way, being very brave uh, in that regard. So as, as, a, as, a, as a committee looking at it, it was very clear that it had to be done, but it was going to be blocked in its full form in terms of how it went through. So a number of proposals were being going to be accepted, but on the base income grant, the approach then was um, two streams. So stream one was it proposed very clearly basic income grant for the reasons I've mentioned, but because we knew in that way it, did not, it would not go through, we then proposed as part B a phased implementation of it. Right. Because what we picked up, particularly in our international discussions, is looking at basic income grant, you, you can do it in variants. And the one variant is, it's hard to say no to children. So that's how the child support grant. So it was like phase one, it's basic income grant for children. Because initially the child support grant was only to the age of seven, and now it's yes. up to the age of 18. Of six. So it would be every few years it will roll up to a different age group and include them until the age of 18. At the time, one out of eight people had a social grant. I think now it's one out of three. And it was really a, a least worst option because we wanted the full basic income grant. So the discussion was, look, it doesn't make sense to extend means-tested system. Just rather do a basic income grant. But because there was that kind of opposition, 
the idea was, all right, well, why don't we just extend the child support grant and make that phase one of basic income grants? If you look at the report, it says phase one, phase two. Phase one was until 2004, 2005, thereabouts, that will roll out child support grant, and then it'll go to adults thereafter. So it was shut down in a way you could see it was going to be shut down, and then there had to be a tactical way to deal with the fact that child support grants are under social development. So you, you could do that. You could still make progress around the obstacle because you could see it wasn't going to be taken uh, at the national treasury level. That then brings the question of affordability because if you could afford to extend the child support grant, why couldn't you just have done the basic income grant? It would have cost the same thing. Incredible. Yeah. It was irrational if you were sitting as a finance person. It would have been, why don't you, for the same amount of money, take for the more sensible program, which would have been the non-means-tested one. Uh, you know, the, the institutional dynamics within policy, it's not, it's not a rational. It's not always rational. The context in which that um, debate was happening was that between 1996 and 2003, we were going through the gear phase where there was like a slash and burn in terms of austerity and cuts in budgets as well. And I found it very interesting when you said that some people thought economic growth would sort out the problem because during that period between 1996 and 2003, the number of unemployed people doubled from 4 million to 8 million people. Personally, I found the economic debates, and then I was still with the labor movement, very difficult because it's very ego-driven debates and a very power-driven debate. So you could present the evidence to say, look, actually, you're going to spend another 80 billion or 100 billion on this program. You could spend the same amount of money on a different program, which is much smarter and future-proof South Africa. Why don't you go for the second one? But I remember at the time, actually, um, I was part of a civil society coalition that was advocating for a basic income grant outside of the committee in support of the committee. And the cabinet rejected the idea of a BIG publicly first because they said 100 rand was too little that it would undermine the dignity of people living in poverty. That was refuted. And then the idea of the costing came out. I remember there was a big distinction between the gross cost and the net cost. Trevor Manuel, as finance minister, was, was focusing only on the gross cost, saying it was completely unaffordable. Robbie's been talking about the fact that you clawed back. But bringing that to current arguments, you've been arguing quite recently in the press that you need to look at the net cost. You know, I was reading an article, this is why I asked Ravi earlier on, by Monica de Bol, who's a conservative Brazilian economist who works in the United States. And she was doing an analysis of the basic income grant, temporary COVID grant that has been introduced in Brazil. And she worked out that once you take into account the improvements in terms of VAT collection and economic growth, the net cost would be about 60% of the the, the, the gross cost, if you understand what I'm saying. So I, I thought that when we talk about the costing, as Ravi says, you must look at the net cost of this um, intervention. In terms of the financing aspects, that's obviously you know, key to the whole a program like this, uh, which is a substantial program. You have to build it with sustainability in mind. So you don't want to do what a country like Mongolia did, which is build a great system based on political promises and then run out of money and then drop it. Only you would know what Mongolia did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Some of us are fascinated with things like that. So it it is important. So when when the committee looked at it, and there were a lot of technical, there's a lot of technical work to do to do modeling at different levels. So 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 even a small amount of money, like a hundred rand per person, which sounds small, 
in a four-person household, that's 400 rand, which is better than nothing if, you, if you're in a household where you don't qualify for anything. There will be distributional uh, effects between the houses. So you would, you would, you'd also have to look at, so for, you know, what, what would happen to a household that had a pensioner and the, but now the pension has been changed because money has gone into a basic income grant. So how many people in the house will now gain from the basic income grant relative to what you might lose as a pension? That would depend. So there's a um, budget neutral approach that you could take, which is to say for the, for the 200 billion rand we spend now on social grants, which is about three and a half percent of GDP, um, could you take the same envelope and say, let's just, you know, put it in the, uh, in the blender and then distribute it in a different way because three and a half percent is quite, is quite a bit, or maybe we could do five, five percent, add something on top. Okay. Uh, but then you would find certain households might get a bit less than they were getting, but more households which are poor do much better. So in net effect, it'll be much better as a platform for everybody. And I'm sure if you look at the links between households, you'll find that it's much better that everyone's not relying on granny. There, you know, there, there's more money spread across. So Politically, that is quite tricky, though. Yeah. Yeah, Dominic, um, our friend at AIDC, he argued vehemently against it, that the basic income grant must not be at the expense of what the current social security yes. system provides. Yeah, That's right. Of course, then th that's where you, you need to have a rational debate because you don't want to also come from the other side uh, of the debate, and then there's no magical. Whatever you do here, you're going to do it for pretty much forever. Mm -hmm. It's not a stop start. I remember a net figure of about 24 billion rands, which is about 50 percent of the growth cost. Is that does that sound right? You're talking about the Taylor Committee. Yeah, the Taylor Committee report. Yeah, you've just said 60 yeah. earlier. Yes, in terms of uh, in terms of the modelling, I think yes, there would have been a figure of uh, something in that region. Yeah, yeah, because I think it was fifty percent. And I also talked to Vivian Taylor recently, and she was trying to explain that the grant would have had certain economic development um, benefits for society, yeah. which would pay back some of its cost. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, it would depend how you structure the grant. So if if you look at the multiplier effects within. The, the spending of the money, and you say, well, people at, in, in those households are more likely to spend their money on then these types people, of yeah. goods, yeah. which are themselves locally produced, then it generates a uh, multiplier in the local economy. If we were to look at how to do it now in COVID world, at that time, government debt to GDP was half what it is now. Yes, we had a lot of fiscal space then. <laughs> I mean, now we had, a, we had a budget surplus in two thousand and four right. five. So now, if you say we had seventy percent uh, debt to GDP, possibly going up to eighty percent, then we were at thirty forty percent, thirty percent, and in fact, it dropped a few years after. So we had a lot of fiscal space then. So if we say, okay, look, but we're already spending now much more than we were spending then because of the child support grant and all those other things, so. We, we already at 3.5%. You can restructure the existing. I'll take a different view to the Dominic. I mean, I, I agree we shouldn't take away from households, but there is a thing we have to deal with, which is just the, the, the budget envelopes are what they are. Um, you can amend it up to a point. But So if you said, look, we want to work within our existing budgets, you could implement a basic income grant with in a budget-neutral way, but you'll have 
losers, particularly at the pension, at, at the households getting pensions. Just interestingly, I've looked at the budget review in 1993. They were spending something just above three percent of GDP, and then now we're spending just above three point about three point three percent on social security. So the net, so there's this perception that we have spent a lot more as a percentage of our economy than what existed under apartheid, but that is just not true. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly yeah. enough, yeah. I mean, it means that the per capita payment must have dropped significantly because we rolled out to many more people than yes, uh, yes, accessed yes. it under apartheid. It should be interesting to look at that, yeah. yeah. But I just looked at the headline number. So maybe this is a good time to talk about the current debates. Because of the, the three-year scale of this COVID um, issue, I, I, I don't know if you've been following the, the IMF policy tracker, Ugo Gentili, I don't know how to say his name. They're about most countries in the world, I think about 88 or 100 countries, have introduced some kind of unconditional cash transfers. This is an idea whose time has come, and many countries are going to find that it's going to be very difficult after COVID to reverse what has been put in during COVID. So this debate is an idea whose time has come. So how would a basic income grant look at in South Africa? Just to frame the debate is that what we're talking about, if it had to be for people aged 18 to 59, the people who don't get the child grant and people who, who don't get the old age pension, if we're at the upper bound poverty level, it is 600 billion rands a year. So if it's further down at the lower bound poverty level, I can't, it's about, a, it's less than that. I can't remember the exact number. So what would it look like um, in this current environment, Ravi? If we were to implement a basic income grant yeah, yeah. as per the original concept. Well, I think the first thing is that you, you, you would have to treat it in a very rational way. Okay, so I think we must just agree whatever we did, we'd have to take it very seriously and do all our homework mm. on it. I think that's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is we would have to be prepared uh, to not be dogmatic and to be as creative and innovative as possible because... There's different ways to get to the same uh, objective. I would say the one the one thing to do would be to look at how you use the existing resources. So I would I would still look at being as budget neutral as possible to begin with. Okay, so at least that forces you to be disciplined to to know that you have to manage the resources responsibly because everything goes up by inflation. So a big number compounding is important to bear in mind. Um, and there would have to be a a restructuring within the state to free up resources. I'm sorry to say, you know, that from these last uh, 10 years, we have totally bloated the public service and we've tripled numbers in all the wrong places. So we have uh, blown some of the budgets in the wrong places, which will obviously come at a cost to now programs you want to do. So... So I, I would look at the budget. Then I would say, all right, well, you, you, I think the second thing you want to do, exactly like we spoke about 100 rand, a small amount of money, but times the number of people in a household equals something good. Mm. So you would still have to say, based on household sizes and household dynamics, what number would actually bring what total amount to a household. So it's not about everyone, like in Sweden, living on their own. They Each one gets a a grant equal to an acceptable standard, you will say, well, if people are living together, what will that total within the household? So you would probably have to uh, look at that. Would you agree to the fact that there should be an aspirational target? So you start low, but you say that we want to be 40% of the national minimum wage, or we want to be 
linked to the food poverty line and then increase above inflation. So when the original Taylor committee looked at it, I mean, this was one of the one of the debates, right? This is one of the big debates and the big, which was how would you fund it? And the idea was exactly like what you've said now, Duma, is 3.3% to 3.5% too much or too little? So the idea was let's agree at what would be an acceptable number from the economy to build in. So what is a percentage of GDP we can of our budget, our national budget, country's budget, that we can put towards this? On so you would index way. that. So as the economy grows, it grows with. So we, we don't have it run out of control, like my favorite country, Mongolia. So so that would become an important part of the discussion that you build in on the financial side. It's okay. So maybe four percent is a good number. Provided that we also, and, and then comes the last part, which I'll bring in, which is one of the linkages that you will bring into the affordability equation that this becomes a catalytic thing. That's a secondary yeah. effect. So if, if, if I had to then take things away from a pensioner's household income, I'll say, all right, but we, we have to take some cash away from you, unfortunately. But what if we gave you a new house? Because a house is one of the most economically stimulating activities. A, it's a house, and B, a house is pretty much locally made. Windows, window frames, local builders, boom, boom. So a housing program that also focuses on pensioners would be very good. Without the corruption of the tenders. You could find ways to bring in, that's what I'm saying, you have to be a bit creative. It can't just be money because a person always wants a house. So, but a house almost pays for itself. Maybe just to say how I came about to believe in this basic income grant. So I was looking at the design of a COVID fiscal stimulus. And I looked at the proposals that were being um, bandied about were at, a, at the presidency, um, the top up of the child grant. And I can't remember all of them, but none of them were large enough to make a difference to, um, for example, to, sh- to counter the impact of COVID-19. So some of them were, I think they were like less than 100 billion rands of new spending. So this is why I'm saying that within the co- context of the devastation of COVID, I don't think we can have a budget neutral one because then there wouldn't be a fiscal stimulus. I came about this thing, so we needed something to fill the hole in terms of mm. what is this COVID will live with. Um, uh, there was a debate now at TIPS um, th- recently where an economist who worked at Treasury said the output gap is about one trillion rand, the hole that is in our economy. We have to replace it with something similar to one trillion rands. And then if you look at what is happening in other countries, most stimulus packages go to the household first, later on to um, protect people who are working and then to businesses. That's the three elements of a stimulus package. But the focus, if you look at all the stimulus packages, is household. So I was talking about something big enough to offset the full devastation of this um, COVID. Looking at the stimulus in South Africa, we seem to have got it to the inverse. So our our primary focus is business um, and then workers through that UIF turds. Mm -hmm. And and then almost as a belated afterthought comes the household and individuals. So the 50 billion rand in terms of our stimulus is 10% of the total package. 50 billion rand that was given to the grants. So that is really too little as a percentage of the whole um, stimulus. Yeah. yeah. So just to just to sum up at the end, so I, I was looking for something big enough to decisively transform our economy. And I quite frankly do not think this incremental implementation of something like this will make that difference. And at some point, I believe 
Ravi. You just have to, I know it's not being irresponsible, but you have to just close your eyes because no country that has implemented fiscal stimulus in the world today could afford it, fiscal stimulus. And I've been looking at the ones in Asia, 15% of GDP on average. The one in the US has already delivered the jobs in, um, after two months. It was, um, if you combine what happened from the treasury and what happened from the other side, it's in excess of 25% of GDP. Big bang, Ravi? Think of it in two, two components. There's a part that must go on forever mm -hmm. as an income support forever. And that has to be thought about as something that you can afford forever. So it's got a feedback loop and so on. And the other one is, other part is something which might be of a shorter duration. The COVID one, yeah. As and when needed. And you can use the same mechanisms, the same delivery system. And that can be almost like a quantitative easing switch on, switch off, depending on situation. So you've got to think of both and all of them together. I like that. Um, it's very innovative, yeah. Yeah, and then all of them together must be worked on the basis of which can have the best feedback loop into the economy. I think that idea of a feedback loop is critical. From my perspective, I just can't believe that the levels of, of hunger and starvation that we're faced with um, on a daily basis are not catalyzing a debate around the base, such as the basic income grant. I mean, we've seen a huge delay in SASA just in, in rolling out the social relief of distress grants. But I think that if one, if one puts it in the phrasing as you've just done it, Ravi, the framing, that you have an incremental longer term reform, but you recognize the need for crisis related humanitarian top ups, that would be one way in which it's more palatable. I mean, Duma, a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about monetary policy and the fact it sounded as if you could just print as much as you need in order to fund this. In episode two, we'll look into monetary policy and ways in which we can more creatively look at ways in stimulating monetary circulation. I did some numbers recently. And if you look at the whole country's balance sheet, You look at the assets in the public investment corporation, two trillion rands. You look at our foreign exchange reserves, one trillion rands. You look at the surpluses in the UIF. I know the UIF is part of the, part of the PIC. And you look at the whole economy, whole balance sheet thing. I worked out that you could actually fund a significant COVID stimulus approaching more than a trillion rands without even printing the money yet. So those are the things that we want to talk about next episode to look at how can we finance such fundamental transformative measures in our economy. Ravi is nodding wildly. Thank you very much for coming into the studio today to discuss this. I hope that everyone who's listening to this is better informed and is able to engage on debates. And as I started off by saying, argue for changing the world. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much, Isabel and Duba. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.